Last week, I directed you backward, two weeks ago, I mean, I directed you backward to Old Testament risk takers uh, like Joab, who took up the cause of God and not knowing how the battle would fall out, he said, may the Lord do what seems good to him. And to Esther, remember, who risked her life for the people of God and not knowing whether the king would lift his golden scepter, she said, if I perish, I perish. And to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who didn't know whether God would spare them from the furnace, but they said to Nebuchadnezzar, whether he will or doesn't, that doesn't matter. We will not bow down to your golden image. And to Paul, who seemed to live one 24-hour period of risk right after another, and said, I don't count my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I might finish my course and complete the ministry I've been given by the Lord to bear witness to the grace of God in the gospel. And the lesson two weeks ago was very simple. It is right to risk for the cause of God. All of life is uncertain, and therefore all of life is risk in obedience to Jesus Christ. And it's right that it should be so. Last week, I directed your attention no longer backward to the risk takers of the Bible, but forward to the risks of your own life and showed you four areas where the Bible is calling you to take risks. One, risks in relationships for the cause of integrity and authenticity and righteousness. Two, risks in your money for the sake of the gospel. Three, risks in your personal witness for the truth and beauty of Jesus Christ. And four, risks in ministry ventures because everybody is attached more or less closely or should be to some ministry that may be costly. The text last week was Luke 21, 16, and it said, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and kinsmen and friends, and some of you they will put to death. And we focused on the little word, some. Some of you they will put to death. Not all of you. Some of you. And he doesn't tell you which group you're in. The some or the not some. The living or the killed. And so the same point came through. Life is uncertain this side of the grave. Totally uncertain. You do not know what's going to happen in five minutes, let alone five years, and therefore it is right to risk for the cause of God. Those who plan security don't understand the biblical view of life. Now today, what I want to do is simply make explicit an assumption that I've had all the way along. Namely, the assumption about what should drive you into risk. What's the power? What's the motive? What's the strength that will move you from comfort to risk? Let me put it negatively, then put it positively. Negative, negatively, my assumption is that you will not be driven by the impulse of heroism, nor by a lust for adventure, nor by courage of self-reliance. 
nor by the compulsion or the need to prove yourself to God and win His favor. I've been assuming that's not what's going to drive you when I summon you to risk for the cause of God. Rather, positively, I have been assuming that what will move, drive, and strengthen you to risk for the cause of God is childlike faith in the triumphant love of Jesus Christ. I've been assuming that the strength to move you into risk where you might lose faith is the faith that God will uphold your faith and vindicate your cause. I've been assuming that the power that will move you to risk money is faith that you have a treasure in heaven that will not fail. I've been assuming that the power that will drive you to risk life for the cause of God is faith in the promise, he who loses his life will find it. I don't want heroes. I don't want self-reliant people. I don't want legalists who have to prove themselves to God. I want children who know that love triumphs on the far side of risk. There's a big difference between heroism and faith. And the big difference is who gets the praise. You get the praise if you through the screwing up of your courage and self-reliance, risk your life for some moral cause. You'll get the praise. But if you are a child, know that the, the strength of Christ is perfected in your weakness and that you just cast yourself upon the arms of the triumphant love of your Father, you won't get the praise. He will. And so it should be. Well, what I want to do today is simply provide the textual foundation, the biblical foundation for that faith, and thus reinforce everything I've said in the past two weeks. I'm going to begin with last week's text, and I would invite you to turn to Luke 21, Luke chapter 21. Verse 16, the reason I begin with last week's text is because it is followed by a verse that is surprising, jarring, and yet sets up a tension which I believe is unfolded in Romans 8, verses 35 to 39. So let's look first at last week's text. In verse 16 of Luke 21, it says... Some of you, they will kill. And then verse 18 says, But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. So let's put them beside each other and let it have its effect now. Some of you, they will kill. Not a hair of your head will perish. Make sense? Doesn't make sense to me. At least not at first. What does it mean? What is Jesus trying to say when he says, Go ahead, 
Take a risk. Obey me. You might get killed, but not a hair of your head will perish. Well, now, I believe that Romans 8, verses 35 to 39, is a commentary on that tension. And I invite you to turn there with me. Romans 8, 35 to 39 is a commentary on this sentence. Some of you they will kill, and not a hair of your head will perish. That's what this text is about. Let's read it together. Verses 35 to 39. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now remember, Jesus said in Luke 21, some of you they will kill. Not a hair of your head will perish. What does Paul say? Let me sum it up in three movements. Number one, Paul says, just like Jesus, the love of Christ for his people does not eliminate suffering for those people. Say it again. The love of Christ, indeed, the triumphant, omnipotent love of Christ does not remove suffering from those people. Verse 36 makes that very, very plain. For thy sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Another piece of evidence is the little word in in verse 37. See the word in? In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Not by escaping them are we conquerors. In them, we are conquerors. So Paul agrees with Jesus. Some of you, they will kill. That's the first statement. And that's what's said here in verses 35 and 36. Therefore, obedience is risk. And it is right to risk for the cause of God. Let's look at some of the risks in verse 35. Tribulation. Christians will experience, will go through, shall I add the? Tribulation. Would it make any difference? You know, the word means weight and pressure. What crushes, what oppresses. Second, distress. Stressful circumstances caused by all manner of dangers. Stress is big, big news today. And this text has something to say about its inevitability in the life of a faithful disciple. Third, persecution. That means active opposition from enemies of the gospel. Fourth, and the last one I'm going to focus on and I'm going to 
I'm going to dwell with, on it for a moment. Famine. Now, why should I dwell on famine? Here's why. Who causes famines? We know who causes persecutions. Who causes famines? Well, today, you might say, well, it could be a technological snafu and a bad fertilizer wrecks a crop. Baloney. Biblically, there was no such thing. Everybody in the biblical day knew who caused famines. Only one person caused famines. God causes famines. It's all over the place in the Psalms. God makes the sun to rise and the just and the unjust. And God causes the clouds to come and the rains to fall. God can bring the locust or take the locust. God causes famines, period. Therefore, don't ever say that the only tribulation Christians must endure is what comes from the enemies of the gospel. There is so much here for us to meditate on. Christians will not be spared from the food shortages. When Jesus said, don't be anxious about what you should eat or what you should drink, and he went on to say what you should wear, and the next word is nakedness. Let's just stick with food for a moment. Don't be anxious about what you should eat or what you should drink. Your Father knows what you need. Seek the kingdom first, and these will be added to you. You think that means that Christians never starve? That if you faithfully seek the kingdom, you will always eat and never starve. Never be hungry. Surely never unto death. I don't believe that's what that means. I believe that when Jesus said that, he meant you will always have enough to eat in order to do the will of God. You will always have enough to eat in order to glorify your Father in heaven. And he knows your limitations. And some of you must eat. Others can die for the glory of God. Do you think there are no Christians starving in Africa? So famine comes from God and kills Christians, which is why I just don't buy the argument that Christians can't go through the tribulation. Here's another implication of famine. It has a lot to say about AIDS. We'll talk a lot more about this in the coming days, I'm sure. We haven't seen but the tip of the iceberg, no doubt. We need a theology for AIDS that's a lot more refined and nuanced and biblical than the tirades you hear often. Is AIDS a judgment on a homosexual who dies of it? Yes. I believe. Just like heart disease is a judgment on a man who never exercised and ate too much and was overweight. Is it a judgment on your daughter when she picks it up from a blood transfusion? 
A little more complicated, isn't it? Should we talk about AIDS as a judgment upon our nation? I think Elijah would have, and Ezekiel, and Daniel. But their message would have been a lot more refined and nuanced than simplistic because 1 Peter 4.17 says if the judgment begins at the household of God, what will be the result and the outcome for those who do not believe the gospel? You see, I, I simply don't have a conception of catastrophes, whether they're famine, flood, AIDS, bubonic plague. I don't have a conception of catastrophes that somehow put little bubbles around Christians. The Bible doesn't support it. This text is the key building block for a theology for the coming ep epidemic. And we'll talk more. And I just commend it to you for your consideration that when famine strikes, it will strike Christians. The second thing Paul says, having said that the love of Christ does not eliminate suffering from Christians, is that these sufferings do not separate us from the love of Christ. Verse 37 answers the question, shall tribulation separate us from the love of Christ? No. But I want you to see the, uh, the meaning of the question here too. We will go through those things. That's the meaning of the question in verse 35 and, and uh, its answer in 36 in the first part of verse 37. In other words, the misery then of a Christian is never an evidence that he has been severed from Christ. This is so important. Because we're all born legalists. Legalists that we are, we immediately respond to a sickness that we have by saying, what did I do? Why is he mad at me? Why has he turned on me? Why doesn't God love me anymore? And this text says just the opposite. It says, no matter what suffering befalls the child of God, it can never be construed as evidence that a separation has happened between the child and love. That's the meaning of these verses. None of these acts of suffering, none of these enemies of your faith, when you fall under them, can ever be construed as God's heart having turned on you, if you're a Christian. It's way too simple to say, hard times, he's mad. Good times, he's glad. That's way too simple. The whole Bible teaches the opposite. Hard times, he loves. And in it, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. On the far side of every risk, there is the triumphant love of God. And that's the faith that I've been assuming for two weeks. The faith that will drive you into risk is not heroism. It's not legalism that wants to prove yourself to God. 
It's not self-reliance and courage and lust for adventure. It's childlike faith. Childlike faith in the triumphant love of God in, under, through the sufferings of this life. Now, let's move to the third thing that Paul says. And this is, I think, the best of all. Jesus says, not a hair of your head will perish. That's just got to mean more than he'll catch you after the slaughter. I mean, it is enough, I think, to move us into the slaughterhouse with verse 36, just to know that he triumphs on the other side. That's enough. But surely when Jesus says, not a hair of your head will perish, it's got to mean something more. Just more than that he catches you when, you when you're crushed. Well, Paul has the same kind of statement. Look at verse 31 in chapter 8 of Romans. If God is for us, who can be against us? I can remember as a boy coming home from school and reading that and seeing lots of people are against me. God? What do you mean who can be against me? And I wasn't very smart in those days. And I didn't understand. What does it mean? I mean, if you change it from a question into a statement, it does say, if God is for us, no one is against us. What does it mean, though? So here you have Jesus saying, not a hair of your head will perish when you get beheaded. And Paul says, nobody is against you. What do you make of these statements? They've, they've got to mean something more. Something more than just he'll catch us after death. And it does. They do mean something more. And, and you can see the more right here in verse 37, can't you? In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And this is the more that I think is implied in not a hair of your head will perish. And the more that's implied in nobody is against you. What does it mean? What do you make of this more than conqueror? How do you become conqueror and then more? Than conqueror. If you attempt an act of obedience and you run into opposition, call it tribulation from verse 35. One of the enemies from verse 35 called tribulation attacks you. Counterattack. Obedience to Christ, counterattack from tribulation. What must happen in that conflict for you to be called a conqueror? I think what must happen is that the purposes of your attacker be defeated. So what is the purpose of, of tribulation? If it's coming against you, in, in what does the againstness lie? Well, it wants to destroy your faith. It wants to cut you off from Christ, leave you without God, send you to destruction. Satan, in all of the temptations and troubles that come against us, 
has the purpose of destruction. So if you're a conqueror, then by faith in the triumphant love of God, you simply defeat that purpose and stay united to Jesus Christ by faith. And it does not win the victory. You do. And you're a conqueror. Second question. What must happen in this conflict between enemy affliction and uh, faith in order for you now to be called more than a conqueror? What must happen in this conflict for you now to be called more than a conqueror? Well, here's what I think must happen. A conqueror defeats his enemy. A more than conqueror subjugates his enemy. A conqueror nullifies the purposes of his enemy. A more than conqueror takes his enemy captive and makes his enemy serve his purposes. Now, where do I get this idea? Is this just my idea? I make this up or, or does Paul teach this? What I'm telling you is this. You become more than a conqueror through him who loved us when your enemies of tribulation and persecution and famine and nakedness and peril and sword not only are defeated, but are enslaved and put to your use. Where do I get that? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 is where I get it. Here's a description of what happens when Paul fights one of the enemies of verse 35 of Romans 8 called affliction. And he belittles affliction. He, he mocks him like David mocks Goliath and says, You're light. You're momentary. This big Goliath of affliction whipped five times, beaten with rod three times, a night and a day at sea, danger in the suburbs, danger in the city. And he mocks affliction. What does he do? He says, for this slight momentary affliction is, here it is, preparing for me an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What has happened to affliction, the enemy? It's been conquered. It's been chained. It's been enslaved. And it's been put to slave labor to produce glory for Paul. Isn't that what it says? The word prepare is a Greek word that means effect, bring about, work. Affliction is now working on Paul's side to enhance the glory of heaven. And Paul is therefore not just a conqueror. He hasn't just lopped off the head of affliction so that it lies useless on the ground. Here's what happened. Affliction is big and strong. He had a big sword in his hand. He targeted Paul's faith and he was going to lop the head off of Paul's faith and sever him from Christ. And Paul, by faith, being a warrior, lifts the hand of faith and grabs the hand of affliction, twists it by the power of Jesus Christ and cuts off worldliness with it. Shaves with it. 
Get the ugliness of his beard off. Scrape some dirt of sin off his arm. Cringes with it. And he holds on to it by the power of Jesus Christ. And he's more than a conqueror. Peril is his servant. Tribulation is his slave. Famine and AIDS can serve his holiness. And that's good news. That's the capstone of the gospel. And it's all owing to the triumphant love of God in our Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. I close now by summing up. I've shown you three things that Paul says which are like what Jesus said when he said, some of you they will kill, but not a hair of your head will perish. Here's the way Paul put it. The love of Christ for His people does not eliminate suffering. Second, that suffering nevertheless will not separate them from the love of Christ. And any suffering that a Christian experiences can never be construed as evidence that a fissure, that a gap, that a severing has come between the love of Christ and His disciple. And third, by faith in the triumphant love of God, we can more than conquer. We can super conquer. We can take captive all the enemies of our faith and make them serve us by trusting in Romans 8, verse 28. All things work together for good. For those who love God and are called according to His purpose. So I return to where I began. It is right. It is right to risk for the cause of God. It is right to take up arms in battle not knowing the outcome and say, may the Lord do what seems good to Him. It is right to love people so much that in your service of love you say, if I perish, I perish. It is right to stand before the idols of this world and say, no, I will go into a fiery furnace before I bow to money or sex or drugs or power. No, it is right to risk for the cause of God. Why? Not because we want to be heroes. Not because we want to earn anything from our merciful Heavenly Father. But for this reason. He who did not spare His only Son, but gave Him up for us all, will most surely give us all things with Him, including our enemies to serve our holiness forever and ever. Great God in heaven, merciful Heavenly Father and triumphant love, we yield ourselves to You at the end of these three messages on risk for Your cause, pleading with You to give us the childlike faith to believe that on the other side of risk there is a triumph of love and to believe You for the more than conquering the putting to service of our holiness, all the enemies of affliction. Oh God, perform it in the lives of your people, I pray. And so liberate us to live for the glory of your name. And all the people said, Amen.